0: Hello, everybody. Welcome to uh, the Department of Literature's new writing series, the spring edition. Um, It's been uh, already a very exciting quarter, and it's going to be continuous momentum from here till the end of the quarter. Um, It's my pleasure today um, to uh, be uh, introducing the people who will introduce our guests, um, Mi Choi and Santiago uh, Vasquez, um, who are going to be uh, reading today. Uh, but before I do that, I would like to just uh, note what else we have coming. So uh, next week, same time, same place, uh, Jamie Pazue is going to be here. Uh, she is a translator, essayist, and poet. And then the following week, the 25th, we have MFA readings from our students uh, who are first years. And then on June 1st, the graduating students from the uh, MFA program in literature. So please do <coughs> return. Um, it's going to be a kind of wide-ranging arra- um, set of people who are going to be reading for you. And I will go ahead and begin by uh, inviting Majo de la Ria to come up and uh, introduce Tommy Choi.
1: I'm to the many accomplishments of the matured. She's the author of Harley Ward by Wei Books, The Morning News is Exciting by Action Books, and she's also an award-winner translator of contemporary Korean women poets, Kim Hyasung, amongst them. Her most recent work includes the chapbook, Petit Manifesto by Legobon Press, and a pamphlet, Freely Freed That I Equals Q, Race equals, equals Nation by Wei Books. She was born in Seoul and came to the U.S. via Hong Kong and currently lives in Seattle. But to now actually introduce you to Don Me, I must talk about how reading her has been discovering once again that there are no borders into what experience narrate in words. Reading her has shown me that her writing about South Korea, about her family, context, ways to understand the world in about a particular time can be read here by me, a Mexican writer in the United States, and by you whoever that you is. But reading her has also reminded me that there are very clear political, economical, and geographical borders present and shaping the experiences in the page. Maybe in no other way clearer than by thinking about the language in which we are reading her. In her writing, the playfully faithfully brings complicated and uncomfortable moments to the reader. War is not only a context or a setting, but it words that marks and claims a personal history. We move in and out of darkness, of gardens, of memories we scope into like by years. In her poetry, her voice stands strong through mechanisms that embody this personal history, weaving <coughs> it with very close attention to words, sounds, their remarks and their connotation. That is to say that there's nothing accidental or innocent in her work. That is also to say that her aesthetic choices are political choices in the most poignant and direct way never shying shying away from confrontation and actually turning confrontation into a method. That is shocking her writing, but then again, that is shocking history. Donne is just an expert at interpolating the page, the reader, reality. (laughs) To talk about her is to also talk about translation. The titles of writer and translator might sound like two different compartmentalized practices, but they are not, at least not in her work. To say that Dunme is a poet is to say that she is a translator, as it is to say that she is an immigrant, in her own words, a foreigner writing in English, and that makes us to write here, or probably more than two. Her approach to writing then brings the vulnerability to the reader not only through words and structure, but also through the choice of those words, through the untranslatable concepts that build realities that might make no sense in another language the experience of trying and trying and making language then a country that is never conquered, a country in which we are also foreign and equals. But if it is true that she feels that, and I'm going to uh, paraphrase her now, her primary technique for translation in her own poetry is failure, I am willing to fail with her. I am embarked on the adventure of exploring what failure sounds and feels like. I want to stumble next to her, to have my own words and context scrum- scrambled by her writing to reveal a story in a relationship to language that is altered, broken, remade, and therefore unique only. And now, without further ado and with great pleasure, that I you guys will done with you.
2: just going to um, read straight and then I can tell you about the photographs for some of the poems. A little glossary: Liguk Suguk Muguk Hwaguk Eguk Beauty Guk Hydrangea Guk Radish Guk. Flower. gook. Love. Guk. Mugungha. Five petals. Mugungha. Woe, are you? It was hardly war, the hardliest of wars. Hardly. Hardly. It occurred to me that this particular war was hardly war because of kids, more kids those poor kids. The kids were hungry until we GIs fed them. We dusted them with DDT, hardly done. Rehabilitation of Korea, that is. It needs chemical fertilizer from the states, power to build things like a country. In the end, it was the heartless of wars made up of bubble gum, which GIs had to show those kids how to chew. In no circumstance, whatever can man be comfortable without art. They don't want everlasting charity, and we are not giving it to them. We are just lending them a hand until they can stand on their own two feet. A novel idea. This is why it occurred to me that this particular war was hardly war, the hardest of wars. My father was hardly himself during the war, then I was born during the era that hardly existed, and therefore I hardly existed without DDT. Beauty is pleasure, regarded as quality of a thing. I prefer a paper closet with, a, with real paper dresses in it. To be born hardly, hardly after the hardliest of wars, is a matter of debate. Still going forward, we are, that is, napalm again. This is the big picture, war and its masses, war and its men, war and its machines. Together we form the big picture. From Korea to Germany, from Alaska to Puerto Rico, all over the world, the US Army is on the alert to defend our country, you the people against aggression. This is the big picture. An official television reports the nation from the army. This is Korea. It's one thing better than another. These South Koreans are all right. Woe is you. Woe is war. Hardly war, war is me, war are you? My father is still alive and this is how I came to prefer a paper closet with real paper dresses in it. Well, it's morning in Korea, the most violently mountainous place on earth. Everyone has been dusted, existence hardly done, whereas beauty has been regarded as a quality of a thing. At Uncle Dan's huddle, donuts and coffee are free. And in case there are any, for there are many, the unescorted ladies are not permitted. The decision has been made in Tokyo for the hardiness of wars, and all soldier made it. The situation in Korea is so critical that we, the Navy, must give the 8th Army practical support. Do you remember how you began this day? How did you spend this morning? Well, are you? Well, pine cones fall every day. So why do we fail? Miles and miles of homeless refugees set adrift by the red scourge. Mukungwa 꽃i piatsumida Mukungwa 꽃i piatsumida Mukungwa 꽃i piatsumida 무궁화 꽃이 피었습니다. 무궁화 꽃이 피었습니다. 일, 이, 삼, 사, 오, 무. 일, 이, 삼, 사, 오, 궁. 일, 이, 삼, 사, 오, 화. 일, 이. Sam, sa, o, su, il, e, sam, sa, o, ku. I refuse to translate. 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 O, over. A little menu: wieners, canned fruit, crackers, soluble coffee, milk powder, granulated sugar, tin of jam, cookie sandwich, fudge, or radish soup, birthday seaweed soup, pan-fried spam with kimchi, strictly lard. So, what did General Fatty eat? Hedranger, agenda Beauty, nation Ugly, nation Ladies' garden, in progress The American visitors The new American ward The beauty of publicity Mother's mop head Ring spots Sway me, yes ma'am Gossamer, blouse Yankee, blouse Yes ma'am, sway me Father, nice to see you Major, it's been a hell of a ride. General M and General H, mother's mop head, I see ring spots. That's a good sight for my old eyes. Yes, ma'am, Ray-Ban sunglasses. So sway me, sway me, or oh sway me. One, parade of the Japanese colonial government's monitors. Two, parade of the First Republic's ROK monitors. Three, Parade of the DPRK Communist Monitors 4. Parade of the Joint ROK-UN Forces Monitors Yes ma'am, did I tell you I saw corpses piled up inside the well in Pyongyang? Did I tell you I had the Communist Monitor who was also a colonial monitor, ROK monitor, then later an ROK-UN monitor dragged the corpse of his brother? Monitor for life General for life. President for life. However, I see buttons and limb spots. Father, Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Major, snap out of it. It's August 15, 1948. He's smiling at me. Fun hydrangeas. Gossamer blouse and Yankee blouse. Warmly greeted one another. I see ugly translators. Yes, ma'am. Me, Cook. Suicide Parade. Father, Cyanide. Let's take a closer look at the most feared weapon used by the U.S. in the Korean War a gelling powder composed of naphthalene and palmitate, hence, Ninham. oleic acid plus 30% coconut fatty acid plus 5% lithium acid necessitates most arguably necessary cleaning, burning necessitates gasoline and stirring, hence gas which is to say South Korean laborers funnel napalm powder into gasoline tanks moisture is the greatest problem in mixing napalm reds dead without a mark on them hence hardly Wooden warehouses and thatched hut villages common in Korea were made to order for firebombs, as were Japan's wooden cities. Hence, Nepalm and hence castor, and the respectable distance of the plains maintains a gusto of ring spots, maintains bumben branch from Fleischin, which is to say, incendiary bomb shrunken bodies. So the story of Nepalm is still being written in Korea. Hence, napalm, plus hence, gastur double hence, daughter, cyanide, double hence, clozapine, clozapine, generic, available, yes, orally disintegrating, reserved for patients who have failed to respond to other standard medications or who are at risk for recurring suicidal behavior. Prescription, yes, should be kept below 86 degrees Fahrenheit. Dosing, dosing, is increased slowly until the optimal dose is found. Animal studies suggest most important effects on the fetus. Oh, fetus, fetus, slows the intestine, muscles of the eye and bladder, is drowsiness, is increased salivation, is heart rate, is headache, is tremor, risking, risking, can be used in pregnancy if the physician feels that it is necessary. Effects, effects, orally disintegrating, is secreted in breast milk, besides, besides himself, herself, nevertheless necessary. If the physician feels that is necessary, or tremor, tremor, going from a lying or sitting position to a standing position, that it is necessarily, necessary, or oh milk, milk. Then I was ready to take flight through the only window in my attic room where I hid alone with a pouch of cyanide in my pocket, then practically flew across the neighbor's tile booths, narrowly escaping, captured by the pro-colonial communist democracy monitor for life. Then I narrowly narrated to my daughter a glass of water, a spoon, quietly locked her door, oh narrowly, narrowly, necessary effects, orally disintegrating the muscles of the eye and bladder, oh bladder, bladder, a condition in which the intestine stops working, then I narrowly narrated to my daughter, hydrangeas daringly salivating, saluting the lady's garden in progress, oh beauty of publicity, then an increased risk of death for unclear reasons, a glass of water, a spoon, quietly locked her door, going from a lying or sitting position to a standing position, narrowly, necessarily. I lack a daisy. I lack a daisy, born two miles from here. Here is EMC. In fact, I like a daisy born two miles from every place you've been how orange yes ma'am i like a daisy born two miles from every place you've been which is known as the human core which translates to born two miles from every flowering belly button here is dmc mark a daisy every belly is a suspect i like a daisy born two miles from every place Every suspect, every petal kicked open, and deeply moved by world memories. There is no choice in the matter. What are world memories? It turns out that they are war memories. And what are war memories? They are orphan memories. Orphan memories are like the fetuses thrown out in bottles, fishy smelling blood clots. I, like a daisy, never saw the fetus fill bottles with my own eyes. But when you're a little girl, what you hear is as good as seen with your very own eyes. Here is DMZ. We talk about blood at great length. Fetuses captivate our imagination, particularly orphan fetuses. After all, I myself was merely an orphan fetus. Luckily, I happily survived. I, like thank orphan memories. i bloody fetal. I'm purely petal, I'm hardly war. Now, ask me a different question. How orange? Yes ma'am, he's my son. Daisy serenade. One, I like a daisy, like a daisy, like a daisy, like a daisy. I like a daisy. Two, nine, nine mind your daisy nine nine hazely daisy three motherly stamen style style overly ovaries four for fear fear your machine vision five or zero do you know oh or five do you know Isang knows. seven i style stigma style, anthem, then ovule, over, six, I sang, I sang, like a daisy, six, I fugue, I fugue, like a daisy, eight, I nearly, narrowly, ovary, over, nine, paisley, daisy, nine, oopsie, daisy, ten, or linden, nine, or berry, eight, or crazy. Seven. Oxide daisy. Six. Or I sang. Five. Or London. Four. Or Yoke. Three. Or Vote. Two. Or Eighteen. One. Overly. Overly. Zero. We must love one another or die. Beauty. Shippah, shippa shippah, shippa, shippa. Shipah, shipah, Oh, nation, beauty, sa, 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 sa Oh, nation, beauty, me, 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 me. Oh, nation, me, over. 돈선, 돈나, 독리 이 그림 옆서의 항공모함이 바로 키티호크라는 아주 큰 배다. 이 그림은 지금 항공모함 옆에 기름을 보급하는 배와 물과 탄약, 폭탄 보급 물자를 옆에 있는 항공모함에게 주는 장면이다. 이 배에는 모다 5천 명이 군인이 살고 있고 하루에 세 번씩이나 북쪽 하노이 아니면 하노이 아니 같은 곳을 폭격, 공격한단다. 이 그림엽서 잘 보관하려다. Daddy's Flower Bed A Little Chorus Rosemose Blossoms Red Blossom Blossoms Me, Baby Azalea, look at flowers and think of Daddy. Miss you, Daddy. Daddy said to me, Let's live together with flowers. But Big Kitty says to me, Translate me and I'll kill you. Rosemarie blossoms. Red blossom blossoms. Me, baby azalea, don't want to live at all. Then place stamp here. Yes, Daddy. To Hanoi, or Haidong. Yes, Daddy. Shitty Kitty. Here comes Shitty Kitty en route to the Gulf of Tom King, or en route to a race riot. That is the question. And meanwhile, discipline is the keystone. And meanwhile, did you see on TV helicopters being ditched into the sea? That is also my film. And meanwhile, all refugees must be treated as suspects. Looking for your husband, looking for your son. That is the question. And meanwhile, she was the mother of the boy. Or that is what the translator said? Or shitty kitty? Or shall we adhere to traditional concepts of military discipline tempered with humanitarianism? That is the question. And meanwhile, South Korea exports military labor left over from the war. That is also my history. Or is that your history? That is the question. And meanwhile, chorus. the Pak Jung Hee and his soldiers in Ray Bans. How much? $7.5 million per division. Or Bin Tai Massacre, $7.5 million. Or Binhua Hua Massacre, $7.5 million. Or Dian Nian Phuk Bin Massacre, $7.5 million. Or Go Massacre, $7.5 million. Or Hai Mi Massacre, $7.5 million. Or Feng Ni and Feng Massacre fifteen million or Tevin Massacre seven point five million or Lin Massacre seven point five million or Mighty History That is the question. And meanwhile a riot began over a grilled cheese sandwich at Subic Bay. Discrimination or perception, that is the question. And meanwhile, the sailor refused to make a statement or translate. That is the question. And meanwhile, 26 men, all black, were charged with assault and rioting. And meanwhile, did you translate? That is my question. And meanwhile, lard or crisco. I, I, sir. Antichorus, kittens in frilly white bonnets, bibs and mittens. Kid song. I, 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 sir. I, crazy daisy, sir. I, export quality, sir. I, grill, grill, sir. I, meow, meow, sir. I, kitty, little, sir. Neocolonies, colony. You provide the prose poems, I provide the war. I, I, sir. Me, translate, sir. Me, bin tai. Me, bin there, sir. Me, bin hua. Me, bin hai, sir. Me, dian nian fo bin. Me, nine nine bao bao, sir. Me, go day. Me, good dad, sir. Me, Ha me, me hate milk sir, me fong nin and fong that, me flunky and fuck that sir, me tayvin, me terrible sir, me vinh shuan, me vc no sir, me tiger sir, me owl, kitty Stoop Under the starry night. Why, it's practically a jungle. Hello, fatty. Hello, kitty. Meow, I love spam. Spam patties. Browned in lard or Crisco. Leftover sour kimchi. Don't be a pussy cat. Jungle water. Boil, boil. Yummy. Miss you, mummy. Oh, tremor, tremor. Going from a lying or sitting position to a standing position. Are you okay, or okay I'm dreaming of a white Christmas, just like the ones I used to know, sir. Mugunghwa, sir. White horse, sir. Blue dragon, sir. May all your Christmases be white, sir. Walking, crawling, or growing. Children listen where the treetops glisten. Search and destroy, said Sugu chorus Of O, oh, dream, no face, just a wide open belly, oh, fetus in the split womb, oh, cut off the baby cord, oh, war, breast cut out and woman shot by ROK Marines, oh, U.S. Marines transport her to the hospital, but she died soon, oh, war. Executed young women's bodies Oh jungle leaves or oh, pregnant woman's forehead blown off or oh, fetus all alone or oh, dream tiger teeth scrambled Oh parade of operations oh bonuses Operation Flying Tiger sir Operation The television in The Deer Hunter is in Clempton, Pennsylvania. Everything is still at one lounge. The clouds, the sky, the unlit neon sign outside the window. All is calm, all is bright. I sing in English while my father is in Vietnam. American wives are in immeasurable pain and so is my mother. American soldiers are pushing a helicopter to the right side of the TV screen. Behind the soldiers is number 19, it stands for USS Hancock, its nickname, Fighting Hana. Helicopter, worrying, it sounds like Godzilla, crying. My father is nowhere to be seen because he's behind the camera, behind the lens, his eyes filled with the green ocean. It zooms in on the soldiers, some in uniform, some shirtless. On the decks with number 19 behind them. They're calm and bright looking down at the flight platform below. Nobody's crying. Number 19 goes beyond Isan's number, 13. History is hysterical. The 13th child also says it's terrifying. 13 plus 3 plus 3, 19 equals 13. A modest shared hallucination. I'm still the 13th child, and Godzilla is still crying. Hannah ditches the helicopter in the sea. Now everything is happening on the left side of the screen. Nobody's in the cockpit of the helicopter. The chopper blades tilt, making a diagonal line across the entire screen. That strange cry. It wants to go home. Oh, like me, like my father. Now the helicopter and its blades are perfectly vertical. To the south china sea the chopper is now engulfed by the sea white with foam sayonara saigon this seems to be the last chapter in the history of american involvement in vietnam now everything appears in the center of the screen helicopter is everything hana is everything my father's framing never sways even when flowers call to him he edits as he films he often told me is nowhere, he's still nowhere to be seen, missing in action somewhere in Cambodia, filming carpet palming, my mother said, oh, the chopper's belly convulses, oh, it's an immeasurable pain, the chopper's door opens and the pilot and men in white shirts and dark pants spill out. It's also been the largest single movement of people in the history of America itself. The choppy blades are swirling in every frenzied direction. Oh, suicidal lines. Sayonara, Saigon. Hillary Brown, ABC News aboard. The attack aircraft carrier USS Hancock in the South China Sea. White with foam. Now I see buttons on history's blouse. So I will go back. Um, (laughs) My my friend, (laughs) okay. So this photo, um, the one on on the left, is um, taken by my father. He used a self timer, so he's on the left and with his two colleagues. Um, It was he remembers uh, taking this photograph uh, in November 1950, so that's um, you know, a few months after the uh, Korean War started in June 25th of uh, 1950. And it's the Taedong uh, River Bridge in Pyongyang, North Korea. And the photo on the right um, was taken um, on mm-hmm. December 4th, 1950 mm-hmm. by um, Max Despo called "Flight of Refugees Across Red Bridge" in Korea. Um, the the poem that the second poem that I read, uh, "Who Are You," I kind of is a kind of a collage of some of the notes um, and stories that my father told me, and also um, notes that I took uh, from watching um, army footage about the Korean War, uh, Korea, the Forgotten War, and. Um, some lines that I picked up um, from a postcard Um, so beauty is pleasure regarded as quality of a thing is by Santayana and um, in no circumstance whatever uh, can man be comfortable with the art is by Ruskin Um, this photo is um, it is from the US National Archives and um, I think uh, US uh, soldier took it. It was uh, taken in 1951. And this is a photo by my father. It marks the uh, Republic of Korea, South Korea's first republic, uh, republic with its first president, uh, Sunmar um on the very far right. He was handpicked by the U.S. Um, so next to him is General MacArthur and General Hajj. Um, I believe General Hodge was um, running the military government uh, from 1945 to 40, uh, 48. And let's see, this is just kind of a cut-up of all the photos that I made. Um, the photo on the left is by my father that he took um, in Vietnam. At the, de, uh, at the demilitarized zone and then the photo on the right is from um, Lyndon B. Johnson's presidential campaign ad against Barry Goldwater um, 1964 and this is a Kitty Hawk postcard my father um, wrote uh, to us um, but he never mailed it um, and this is from 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 the Vietnam Veterans of Korea website. Um, You provide the prose poems, uh, it's from Citizen Kane, film 1941, um, and White Christmas was played on armed forces radio to alert US personnel, foreign nationals, and at-risk veterans to be ready for evacuation from Saigon during its fall in April 1975 and some of the names of the divisions, uh, uh, Capital Division, Tiger uh, Division, um, Blue Dragon, these are all names of the uh, South Korean uh, troops, Uh, and they were responsible for um, many massacres of civilians um, in the Bindin uh, province. Um, So that is photo taken. My father's friend—I can't remember. his Sorry, I forgot his name. Um, took a photo of my father. That was in Saigon, outskirts of Saigon, um, in May of 1968.
0: After <laughs> We next want uh, to invite Miguel Lisa Solis to um, come and introduce our next speaker. Lisa is also a student in the MFA. Thank you.
3: we used to make the one-hour drive to Chico once a week to buy groceries and return stacks of books to the Butte County Public Library. In the summers, we would spend the hot afternoons swimming in Big Chico Creek before driving back to our home in the foothills of the Plumas National Forest. I would watch out the window as John Deere tractor sales lots became rolling grassy hills, and as volcanic stone masses became thick with manzanita and ponderosa pines. But this wasn't the only landscape I considered home. My other home was in Oaxaca, Mexico, a place radically different from Butte County in culture, politics, language, and environment. Little did I know I wasn't the only one puzzling over the compared complexities of these exact same landscapes and eating peanut butter and jelly tacos. (laughs) At the time my family was attempting to run a Mexican homestead in the foothills of the Sierra Nevada, unrepentant border crosser Santiago Vaquera Vazquez was completing his Bachelor's of Arts at Chico State University. An ex-DJ, writer, painter, and academic, Santiago received his doctorate in Hispanic Languages and Literatures from UC Santa Barbara. His writing has been published in anthologies and in multiple, con- in multiple co- countries, and he is the author of four collections of short stories, Algun Dia Te Cuento Las Cosas Que He Visto, Luego El Silencio, One Day I'll Tell You All The Things That I've Seen, and El Lastly Found, and, and El Lastly Found, which just came out uh, this year. Uh, It was published by Ediciones Suburbano. He is currently an assistant professor of creative writing and Hispanic uh, Southwest literatures and cultures in the Department of Spanish and Portuguese at the University of New Mexico. In his fiction, Santiago's characters stand in awe of radio song juxtapositions and the bittersweet frustrations of love that refuses to settle. The voice of Santiago's writing is earnest and minimalist. Santiago's work draws from a rich palette of imagery geography, and themes. It is his heartfelt attempt to paint a picture of what it means to grow up and grow old inside a multicultural reality that, like a fractal, is ever unfolding into new and more complex permutations. Please welcome Santiago paquero I
4: wanted to continue to listening to my introduction. That was fantastic. Thank you, Thank you so much. Uh, thank you for the uh, for the lovely invitation. I'm glad that you're uh, you're out here on a uh, Wednesday afternoon, uh, and uh, it's fantastic to be here in San Diego. Uh, I'd like to thank, of course, Camille and the rest of the uh, the, the rest of the uh, the literature uh, the creative writing literature uh, faculty for uh, for the, the this really kind invite, and especially to my friend Cristina Rivera Garza. It's going to be a real shocker when she's uh, not now she, when, when she's no longer uh, with you all. Um, as she's uh, moving on to Texas, so uh, I'm really, really happy to be here before she gets to, before she heads back uh, heads back east. Um, <clears throat> I'm going to read a couple of things. Uh, I'm going to do uh, something from the book. I have a few copies over there. Uh, this is my first book in English. I write primarily in Spanish. I'm a Chicano writer, originally from California, grew up and born and raised in Northern California, uh, outside Chico. Um, as I used to tell people, I'm just a Chico Chicano from Chico, and uh, and the um, and but I used to live in Santa Barbara, and I have family in in the in San Diego and in um, and in uh, Mexicali, right? So, uh, but I currently live in New Mexico. As I often tell my uh, my students in um, in Turkey, right? It's uh, when I tell them where I live, I say, you know, it's Breaking Bad land. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read a, uh, a short piece from the book. One day I'll tell you the things I've seen. As I said, it's my first book in English. It's the first uh, I, I self-translated uh, the stories, and that was an interesting experience. Uh, and this is a piece called Sleepwalker. Months later, the same nightmare. I had fallen into the irrigation ditch, and the current was taking me to the tunnel beneath the highway. I would flail in my sleep in an attempt to get out of the ditch and onto the ground. My brother Todd suffered the same dark dream. There were nights when I would wake to hear him thrashing in his bed, raising his arms, diving under the covers, grabbing a pillow, and then breathing deeply, knowing that he had saved me. Todd was a sleepwalker. He he acted out his dreams with such intensity that moms had to lock the bedroom door at night so he wouldn't get away. For years, I lived these dreams, too, because we shared a room. He would kick the air, applaud, Act out scenes from Star Wars, shit like that. One night, Moms forgot to lock the door and he walked outside. And I followed. We walked down the quiet street by the light of the moon. I watched the homes of my mostly sleeping neighbors. There were a few televisions on, occasionally a dim light, but mainly the houses were dark. We wandered around the hood until I could finally guide my brother back home. And after that night, he had to go to bed, zipped up in a sleeping bag to restrict his movements. His voice on the phone, barely audible, hoarse. There's a lot of noise on the line. Ruido Blanco. He calls from beyond the storm of static, a voice calling from another planet. As a kid, he was a sleepwalker. Now he's an insomniac. I can see him standing there, whispering to me on the phone, He's too thin, his gaze distant and blank. I know that he is nervously scratching at the scars that mark his arms. He's telling me about his trip to Soledad. I look out the window, snow, his voice coming from across 3,000 miles of continent in three time zones, he in San Francisco, I in Hanover, New Hampshire. A storm of ruido Blanco between us, his voice scrambled in the night world. There's a, vo- there's a photo of us together taped to a wall- the wall of my dorm room. We're standing on a hill. Beyond a- behind us are the ditch and in the-, in the orchard. And he was dressed in that style he brought back with him after his first year at Cornell. Khaki pants, iron flannel shirt buttoned to the top, shiny calcos. No one could understand why he returned with that moda, that very Los look. An urban SoCal Cholo look showing up in rural northern Califas. Me, I'm in my usual uniform of jeans black t-shirt with the Green Lantern logo, and scuffed Nike shoes. He went to Soledad because they said he'd find her father there. I never understood why he insisted on looking for that cabrón. Maybe he thought he could save him. Todd had always been that way, looking for damaged people to save. Maybe he thought he could save himself in the process. One morning, Todd walked out of a camper where he was crashing and headed for the nearby hills. The insomnia made everything more intense. The colors, the sky the landscape, and, the, and a stop sign captivated him. Dark stains appeared to be eating the white STOP. The letters slowly dripped down into the red and mixed with the stains. They meant something dark and horrible. Freaky, I said. I touched that sign and felt an odd vibrat. Neta, brother. I felt like those mantas sensed me and began to move toward my fingers. I lifted my hand and, I don't know, I felt something strange. A heavy sense of cansancio. I fell asleep right there. He says all this, and then sighs. He dreamed. He was sitting beneath the stop sign when Dad drove up in a black car. Doc Todd stood up and called to him. No response. The car moved forward, heading towards the hills, and Todd began to began to give chase, yelling, his, yelling out his name. He couldn't catch up, though. He slipped and fell beside the road. I woke up when I hit a rock. I stood up. I was alone in the hills, scratched up, bleeding from one of my knees. And? And nothing. Nada. I walked down the hill to the camper, never found our dad. I always arrive five minutes after he leaves. The only thing I find is his echo. A long silence. I hear someone asking my brother something. No response. And then I hear him sigh deeply. I saved you, brother. Do you remember? That time you fell into the acequia? Of course. Maybe t- maybe best, I'll save you sometime, I said. Doubt it, I said. I doubt it a lot. Check this, brother. Check out what I'm going to tell you. Are you ready? Tell moms that I know how this will end. What? <clears throat> Rilo Blanco on the line, coughing, the hoarse, whispered voice that comes from a long ways away. I know how this will end. And then silence. I'm left holding the phone, whose wind, static, I close my eyes and I see the stop sign, the melting letters, the dark stain, the echo of a person who could no longer be saved. So uh, I, I, I write primarily short stories, uh, as I, I think it's because I'm mainly a man of short breath. Um, I've been working uh, on a book uh, of longer stories, uh, and what I'm going to read is uh, just a, an edited version of uh, of one of the new pieces. In that, in bo- that is about uh, a family and it's about travel and migration and uh, a brother and a sister, a sister who has died and a brother is trying to figure out why, um, <clears throat> why about uh, trying to figure out her, about, about her life. But that piece is, this piece that I'm going to read here is, sort of, is marginally uh, connected to that larger story and it's titled um, Amnesiac. Es que vivimos solo para tener memoria de nuestra vida. It's a quote from Jaime Sabinez. Year 15. It was what you find in that book of poetry by Jaime Sabinez that brings it all back. A note in her neat script, written in the margins of one of the Mexican poet's prose poems. You're working in the study when you remember a verse by Sabinez that you want to reference. So you go through the box of books, the only ones you brought with you when you return to California and you dig out your used edition of his poetry. Flipping through it, you find the note. Why are you doing this? She had also underlined the verse, do we only live to have a memory of our life? It was from her, Achelia. You think it might be, it might be time to call your boy Art. You're afraid you're gonna, call, you're gonna fall again, afraid it's time for another intervention. Suavecito, you tell yourself, take it easy. You walk out to the small balcony that looks out over downtown Santa Barbara, the channel and the islands in the distance. You're back as a visiting professor at UCSB where you did your graduate work years ago. And looking down from the hills towards downtown, you remember the two years you spent there with her. Your memory calls up that which you wanted to forget. The walks, around, the walks around town, the burritos at the Rincon Alteño, the drinks at Elsie's, the movies at the Arlington Theater, and the long hours of her coffee at the Santa Barbara Roasting Company. And it all comes out in a rush. You recall the feelings you felt, the sense that you were living in a, glory, in a glorious, light-filled moment, and that the mess you had made of your life up to then was becoming repaired. In your reminiscence, you often return to the places where you've lived, the streets and neighborhoods where you've walked, and the relationships you've had so you can remember the way you lived, the things you felt or believed you felt. Sometimes you'll pull up those memories and look at them in the safe light of distance. But when it came to Achelia, you knew that the only way to get over her was to lock her memory up into a strong box and bury it deep inside you. You reach for your phone about to call your boy Art. Chicano art, as you always call them. But you pull it down and walk back into the house. You walk into your home office and look at the postcard you keep tacked to the wall. For the last six years, wherever you've lived, you always carry it with you. Because you received it from art. And after that weekend, after that weekend years ago, all it says in, is that old Mexican proverb, No hay mal que dure cien años, ni pendejo que lo aguante. What's that mean? One of your first-year undergrads once asked when he saw it hanging on your office wall. There was no pain that lasts a hundred years, nor a fool that will take it, you responded. It never occurred to you to return to the memory of Achelia Caradonis. There are certain things that you strive to keep buried in your past, secret even to yourself, but sometimes things come back. You should know that by now. If it hadn't been for that short note written in her hand, beside a poem poem by Jaime Sabinus, your own recollections of her and you would not have started up again. Year one. So you're out on a Saturday night with your girl, Malena, in Istanbul. Home is from north of Sacramento, from a small farming town in a valley. Like many in that part of the state, the town has a, sm- has a sizable Mexicano population working in the orchards and the fields. Her life was one of fiestas at the farmhouses where the kids would run to the fields or the families would sit around roasting a pig or making carne asada around a big grill. There were, a ca- there were the occasional quinceaneras where the local community would come out to celebrate. this on a Saturday night after a long work week and church on Sunday mornings, a heavy life of experiences punctuated by the occasional tragedy, raids in the orchard by the migra, fights at the end of a drunken evening, deaths from heart attacks, drownings in the irrigation ditches, or deaths from a broken heart. It was a constant pouring in and pouring out, but she and you and your friends didn't see it that way. What you all saw, what you all felt, was a boring life in a small town that, sm- that felt isolated from just about everything. And Malena wanted a change. Your town of one stoplight, too many churches, and an equal number of bars was too small for everything she imagined in life. And so she left California and moved to Turkey. When you all heard her plan, you were all like, Kike, Turkey? Damn, that's far. What's a little Mexicana from, from a farming town in is going to be doing in Istanbul? As soon as you can make it work, you gotta check it out. Of course, as soon as the news gets out, her mom and, and, and her tia said it straight over to your place. Tonto, you tell yourself, should have kept the trip secret until you were on the plane. And so that's how you end, up, you end up carrying a bunch of stuff from them. Tortillas, chiles, shit like that. They're all worried that Malena can't get real food in Turkey. You almost have no room for your own stuff. Your mom tries to be helpful. Years of packing a car to the roof for trips to Mexico have made her a master at the game of packing Tetras. She's a believer that if there's an empty space, no matter how small, that means she can pack one more thing. One time, you watched her pack the, pack the car for a you watched her pack the car for a trip to visit the abuelos. She sat your little brother in the back seat, then packed around him. Whenever you had to stop for food, bathroom break, whatever, you had to unpack the car to get your brother out of there. Anyway, you're packed when you're, you're overpacked when you head out. Miraculously, the bag you check in isn't over the limit, and you're, because you're exactly at the weight limit. Your carry-on bag, however, that's something else. You briefly consider tossing as much of the stuff you got from Malena's family when you pass through Frankfurt. But you're also worried that the Tia's will drop a Mexicana curse on you. Ain't nobody needs that, especially you, since you already feel like you've been cursed. You're blown away by Istanbul as your plane descends over the Sea of Marmara. You see the size, the Bosphorus Strait, the bridges crossing it, and as the city looms closer, the minaret's on the hill. Once you're out at the airport, look, airport looking for a taxi, you, need, you note an air, an, air, an air of anxiety. There are soldiers and police around, all around. However, the night you're out with Malena and her friends in the area of Taxim, you see that the bars and streets around the square and along the street remain full. You all end up at a bar near Gaza Park. And you're scoping out the scene, the people are doing their thing on a Saturday night, and for the first time in months, you feel relaxed. All that business back in California is far, far away. You go to find the bathroom, and when you come out, there's this woman with short pixie hair, with a short pixie haircut uh, standing there. In her vintage mini dress, she sits there and smiles at you with these beautiful dimples and says, Santiago Villegas, te he estado esperando, in perfect Spanish. You look at this flaca staring at you with a wide smile on her lips, and you respond, was I in there that long? She laughs. No, para nada, it's just that I've been waiting to talk to you. She introduces herself as Achelia. She's a friend of Malena's. Then she tells you she's moving to California for a year. She has a Fulbright to study in Santa Barbara. She heard that you were there you were in grad school there and she wants to know if she can contact you. Glada, you respond. Of course you absolutely of course you absolutely repeat in English because you're still struck by the fact that she speaks Spanish. Year three. Achele is able to extend funding for an extra year. With her by your side, you feel a tight bond that that often makes you catch your breath. You think that somewhere in your times together, that you would scratch each other's names on your arms. You were connected, tight. The flow between you was serious. And she has an apartment close to the freeway, while yours is a bungalow up near downtown that you share with a Colombian grad student, Diego. As her place is dark and depressing, and because one of her neighbors is always poking around, You and she spend most of your time at your place. The bungalow has this large, sunny breakfast nook, and in the afternoons, Diego, Achelia, and you sit at the nook and drink Turkish coffee. When you finish, she sometimes reads your coffee grounds. Other times, Diego and she hold competitions. He brings out his tarot cards, and the two test each other's strengths as fortune tellers. You're always the one who has his fortune told. In one, you're supposed to make a trip to the Red Sea. In another, you're holding a baby. In one of the last readings, she sighs before telling you that you will pass through a terribly dark place, one that will take you years to cross. But at the end, you will be fine. And the three of you laugh at that one. Year six. You're done, Art asks after picking you up at the airport. You're returning from your fourth trip in a year to Turkey, and instead of flying home to Iowa, you go to Santa Barbara. You need to see the ocean. You need to stand on the beach and watch the water spreading forth for miles and miles. The waves traveling for long distances. You need to feel the air of Califas. You need to see Chicanoards. Ever since Achelia returned to Turkey, you cross the Atlantic a few times a year, and the first times are easy. From Cedar Rapids, you fly to Chicago, and then on to Istanbul, where you usually arrive in the late afternoon. After passing through customs, she's always waiting for you in the crowd of people waiting outside international arrivals. She gives you a long, strong hug. And then you both walk to a small cafe in the terminal for a quick tea before going to to her car. Pulling out of the parking garage, she smiles and tells you to steal yourself because of the traffic. The highways are always choked with cars and trucks. Sometimes it takes up to three hours to get to the apartment she shares over on the Asian shore. The two of you don't mind, though. You and she have always had this ease of conversation, something that your exes would find hard to believe. But it's true. The two of you talk about everything. Well, she effortlessly navigates the traffic, and you stare out the window in your jet-lagged state, and, and occasionally comment on the passing cars, the mosques, and the ships in the Bosphorus. Watching her as she winds her way through traffic in the last light of day, with a smile on her face, you think you never want this to end, that this is what you've always spent your life your, your life searching for, a place to be, with her by your side, you feel that you have arrived. But the end was inevitable. Always at the airport when she drops you off, she says, this is the last time. She says this every time, this is the last time. And she holds you in a tight embrace. And you fly back alone, thinking about what waited for you, an empty, quiet apartment full of furniture that you've had since grad school, furniture that still has her presence. And you sit in your living room thinking about all those things that you and she have gone through, the trips around Turkey by train, the cheap hotels where you've stayed, the long walks around Istanbul. Sometimes the weight of all those memories is too much, and you get in your car, and you drive around in the middle of the night. Then, after a couple of months, she always calls you. Come back, she says. She kind sits with you at the bar in Elsie's and shakes his head. This has to stop. Year seven. This is the last time you see her. She was living in Izmir with her brother then. Then a fourth-floor walk-up over in the Caritas neighborhood. You spend a few days together, walking around her hood, poking around the bazaar, sitting by the water across, across from the restaurants along Cordon, beer followed by Raca and Elzanjak, and occasional trips across the bay to Krashiaka to see friends. Often, your nights of wandering around the neighborhoods of bars, restaurants, and cafes end with the two of you at 1 a.m., ordering boyos from a, bender, a street vendor and eating the egg-and-cheese pastry on your way back to catch the bus. On your last night there, after a night out with friends, you you're, you're, you're both race to the dock to get to take the last ferry across the bay. You sit at the back. It's a bitter cold night, and she's bundled up in a dark coat and red scarf. Her hair is longer than, and it blows in the night wind. She looks at you and gives a sort of half-smile, but there's a look of sadness in her eyes. You want to hug her, to take that sadness off her and bring it into you, but then it hits you. This is the end. This is the last time. Look at me, Achelia tells you the next day when the bus pulls up, bus to the airport pulls up to the stop. Look at me, she insists. Everything is going to be all right. Then she holds you tight and buries her head in your shoulder. Year nine. What can you say about the years since you last saw her? How can you describe the months, the weeks, the days of pacing, the sleeplessness, the drives around Iowa City in the middle of the night? What can you say about how you became a ghost, a specter haunting the city, hoping for a return to life? How can you you talk about trying to keep your life from unraveling? At some point during a particularly long, cold winter, you consider driving out into the woods beyond the Cedar River and just sitting in your car. You think about driving out to the Sutliff Tavern. You remember the one time she visited you. You had brought her to the tavern one night, and the two of you sat on the abandoned bridge over the river, listening to the frogs and the water and the wind passing through the trees. You think a few times about that drive into the woods, You want to find a space where the woods are thick, someplace to park unnoticed. You figure you'll just fall asleep and then feel nothing. Or maybe you'll get out of the car, walk into the trees, and just lie down by the river. Maybe you won't be found until the spring thaw. Because you want to hate her. You want to hate hard. You want to be that guy, the angry ex, the one who cuts up all the photos and burns them in the fireplace, and later drinks a bottle of tequila and shouts out, ahua, ya estoy bien. The one who sends scathing emails, the one who leaves blistering messages on voicemail. But you can't. Instead, you drink too much, you eat too much, and you let yourself go to shit. And then, one bitter cold night, you find yourself in the woods on a winter night. You have no idea how you got there. In the dark and through the snow, you make your way to the car. You drive home, and you call your He's on the first plane he can get to Iowa. He knows just what your busted up heart needs. He stops at a liquor store where you stock up on beer and tequila. When you get to your house, he pulls out his, his out of his bag a bottle of mezcal that he brought from him that, that he brought with him. Then he starts to rummage through your music collection. He has you pull out your CDs and your vinyl. He commands you to dig up your turntable from storage. Looking through your records he asks, Yo, why do you have a record by Julio Iglesias? That was my mom's loco, I respond, and just shakes his head. Then he pulls out a record by Jose Jose, and he shakes his head even more before asking, Bato, is this the dude who sings that song about that guy telling some chava that she must be mistaken that they once had a relationship? Simón, Abnesia, that's the role that you answer. He pulls out the album, checks the song, and puts it aside, just in case, he says. This seems like a good place to begin, he declares, lifting a record by the Smiths out of the crate. Then he reaches for the first six-pack. From the Smiths, you go to Joy Division, New Order, The Cure, and then Lloyd Cole and The Commotions. For some bands, and Sebastian, Camera Obscura, Ryan Adams, Elliot Smith, The Shins, Coldplay. The Shins, Coldplay, really, bro, Art says? You went from being the cool punk rock DJ to that vato from Garden State. You moved to the CD player. As you get more and more wasted, you have this urge to call her. Pinchy Chicano Art, however, he's taking your phone. And the first night, you dream about her. There's a party going on at her apartment, you're both in the kitchen prepping food to take out to the guests. A song comes on, and you start dancing in the kitchen. The two of you spin around the tiny, the tiny room, separated from the others in the living room, and dance for a public of dirty dishes, spoons, and little plates of prepared foods. And at one point, she whispers into your ear, Why are you doing this? You wake up. Chicano artist asleep on the floor. The coffee table is empty. The coffee table is covered with empty bottles. The record player kneel, needle skips and skips and skips at the end of Tom Waits' closing time. And on the second night, Art remarks, it's too bad you don't have the lowrider oldies collection. That series was tight, loco. Angel baby. I'll never be over for me. It'll never be over for me. Sleepwalk together. Nothing but classic Rolas for cruising through the hood and trying to overcome heartbreak. Dude, you grew up on a farming town in Northern Califas just like me, you remind him. He simply grins and continues to flip through your record collection. He puts on Los Lobos and pulls out more beer. Somewhere at the back of your head, you hear her asking, why are you doing this? On the third night, Chicano Art brings out the heavy artillery. He, dr- he br- digs through your crates for what he calls the breaking case of emergency session. He puts on some boleros by Los Panchos. From Los Panchos, he goes to Javier Solís, then La Negra, and Lola Beltrán, and then he pulls out the big guns, José Alfredo Jiménez and Chabela Vargas. Yes, he's gone with the nuclear option. By the end of Que Te Vaya Bonito, you knew that something was going to have to give. The soundtrack of Curing Your Broken Heart is doing its magic. When he puts on Tú las Nubes, and then La Que Se Fue, you're both crying together at the table. You feel all those moments, all those experiences with Achelia leeching out of your hands. Her name, carved into your arm, is fading. And you stumble out the back door and sit on a landing. You remember a trip to Veracruz that Acheli and you took together. From Mexico City, the two of you hopped on a bus and arrived close to midnight. Exhausted from the long trip, you made your way to the central plaza. There was a major pachanga going on. A group of students from the Tec de Monterrey had just arrived. They hired a Norteño band and went directly to the plaza to have a party because they had to get the desert out of their system and forget the hours and hours of bus travel. You needed that too. You danced into the humid southern night to the beat of Norteño. Music that exists to lighten a weighty load, to reduce sadness, and to remind everyone that no matter how heavy is our burden, no matter how pesado our heart may be, Norteño will save you in the end. Veracruz heightens the senses, colors, emotions, everything, and all of this is almost too much, Achelia told you as she looked out over the Zócalo. Everything is so much more. The music hits harder, the heat is heavier, and after a few days together, you send a postcard to the friends in Northern Califas where she writes, Here we are, Veracruzin. You remember that postcard, signed by the two of you after a drunken night in Veracruz. You look up at the morning sky. In that moment, you realize that this is it. After so many years, this is how you lose her. The sky is growing brighter. Soon the sun will rise. You look out over your backyard buried under fresh snow. You stand up carefully holding the memory of that postcard and that trip to Veracruz, and then you seal it all and bury it deep inside you, along with everything else that's related to her. That stuff happened. Those emotions were lived. But that is all in the past. You wait for the rising sun, knowing that you are going to be fine. Yes, yes.
0: Like to go ahead and um, give you the opportunity for uh, questions, and maybe if we could just have me and Santiago, just kind of here in this area so that people can direct questions to you, um, that would be great. great. To you. Yeah, okay. yeah.
5: instead of just talking in regular language you, you're talking about displacement from the dream time and that because the displacement from the dream time uh, we, we're trying to capture the dream time by sleepwalking which also displaces you uh, displaces you from uh, the regular life because uh, sleepwalking is not sleep, nor is it being the dream time but in fact it's a of dead. Mm-hmm. Okay. So could, that, to me, is a very, very powerful metaphor about being neither here or there. Could you say more about that? Because I found that I it
4: Well, thank you very much for that comment. Uh, yes, in fact, uh, I write a lot about relationships because um, I can say that I'm, um, I can say that I'm an unrepentant border crosser, right? and because I spent my life crossing borders, my my parents. You know, crossed over uh, a few crossed over a few months before I was born so I would often say that I was Echo Mexico but born in the USA and uh, and 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 for me right, writing about relationships different type of relationships, in this case relationship between brothers is uh, is a type of border crossing um, because this is ultimately what it comes down to right how do we connect with another uh, and and so yeah I think in a, in a much larger way um, Sense, right? It is this, 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 uh, this, feeling of connection that we as Latinos and, and people of color in this country that is often that in a country that is often marginalized us, right? Feel this, this disconnection. How do we connect across um, uh, uh, languages and uh, class situations, right? So I think that those are I think I, 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 I what I try to do is I try to distill right, a lot of these these questions that I that I often teach. Into what? into into my writing. So yeah, thank you for very much for that for that question. I'm usually give really long responses, and I have a much longer one, but we we have a time issue here. But we can continue talking about it because I think it's very important. Um, I'm interested in how you made
5: that second uh, story with the second uh, person narrative? Did you start out with
4: Thanks. Thanks for the question. It's um. Uh, it's uh. uh I'm always been fascinated by second person narratives. Um. It's 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 not an easy voice to use, right? And so. Um. And, uh, uh. My training is on Latin American literature, so I think of, I think of novels like, uh, eh, Well, the one the, the, the first one that comes to my mind is of course Carlos Fuentes, La Muerte de Temer Cruz, right? Which has all, all three voices. But uh, but another novel that I've always loved is um uh, is El Mundo Alucinante by Ronaldo Arenas which also breaks the, uh, yeah, there's a section in first person, section in second, third person and first person, and, well, you know, second person. So when I, when I originally wrote this story, it was written in third person. I presented it uh, 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 at, in San Francisco last year at, the, uh, at a literary festival. The theme was love-hate. And so, um, but as I was reworking it, I thought, well, I'm gonna try to put in the second person to see how it works. I think I'm I'm still sort of toying with it. This is actually the first time I've read it in this form, um, and it's it's also been expanded. So yeah, it is a, it is something that I find I find it's an interesting narrative voice, right? The second person, um, and if if any, I'm sure that you've all read, right? You Diaz has, has used the second person really interesting and in, in really in really well in um, in the brief wonders like Oscar. Wow, right? there's some great sections. So I have two questions, maybe
5: one question. Um, so the first, you mentioned that you self-translated. Uh-huh. Um, so I have in that same process right now, and I thought, how do you avoid, or if you find it valid, like the
4: part of editing as you're translating, or like how do you separate the writer from the translator, speak? This is the difficulty, right? I talked about this yesterday in, um, in, in Christina's class, right? I mean, because ultimately, for the longest time, I had, uh, as an academic, my, my, my scholarly work was in English, but my creative work was in Spanish, and I had sort of this idea that somehow, right, English was my Spock language, right, the language of rationalism, right? And and Spanish was my creative language. And so when it came down to starting to translate uh, and breaking breaking those boundaries, what I found was that I started started, um, rewriting. And I'm not, um, as a a translator, especially as a self-translator, I I think, I think I'm more like George Lucas with, with, with Star Wars, right? I mean, you, you start rewriting and changing things. Mm-hmm. It, the, the difficulty is, of course, right, once I, I ended up rewriting the story in the English or retranscribing it in English, I would have to go back into Spanish and change that too, and then I would make other changes in Spanish and then go back into English, and it becomes a, becomes a, a, a terrible dialogue, right? It's, at one point, you have to say, okay, enough. Um, but it is, it is a, it's, I think it's, if if you're bilingual and you have and you can do it, I think you should because I think it's a really great experiment in, in looking at how uh, how each of the languages that we carry how they work on different on different levels. So, sorry, second
5: part to that. Um, okay. now that you mentioned it is the idea of the, the use of Spanish in your text. Uh huh. And um, do you feel that that's like a sort of like a political obligation or did it come naturally
4: or is it like a mix of both? A pop of, the, the short answer would probably probably be both. Right, I think it's important to recognize that the Spanish who we speak in this country um, is uh, is different from, say, um, Spanish in Mexico, right, right. or Spanish in, in other parts in other parts of the Spanish-speaking world. But it, that that our Spanish has interesting features, uh, and 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 also that when we're talking about communities in contact, well, languages are going to blend. And so I'm a, I'm a huge fan of Spanish. In fact, I've, I I in my classes I I I, I say you know the. The official languages in my, in my classes, I teach in Spanish at, um, at UNM, University of New Mexico, and the first official language is Spanish, and then Spanish, and then if they really are suffering, then they can go into English. Right? But I, I, think it's, I think it's important to, uh, to emphasize the, um, the reality of those of us who, who've grown up in, 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 a contact, in, in language contact with other, with, other, with other communities. So when I travel, I do a lot of, do a lot of travel uh, to, to Europe and, and, to, um, and to Turkey uh, recently, uh, I often ask about these kinds of questions, right? Does, do you mix? And how do you mix? And what does it mean? So, uh, again, short version, but right? it's, it's a mix of both, but right? it's a political reason, it's part, but also part of me, it's, a, it's an identity reason. I have a question that's
0: Probably directed to both of you at thinking about translation, but um, in particular about the use of the archive, which might be a little bit right. more uh, oriented towards me. Um, but thinking about um, there's this kind of question of what to translate and where to leave those kind of gaps, and then particularly with the archive, having this kind of recognition that there's a kind of official history which the national archives tends to tell, and then a kind of more personal history that with with sort of materials that are kind of also family. Materials, And I wonder how you kind of negotiate that in particular when you're um, working on your uh, writing, how to integrate that, what to privilege as you're thinking about these different kinds of uh, archives as well. Um, well,
2: this um, part before, I, the, the, official, um, um, the official narrative about the Korean War said that the U.S. Uh, saved us um, communism, um, but that's you know. So I was trying to go um, to write against um, that official narrative, and um, by um, infuse uh, incorporating my father's you know personal experience of the war, and um, and also what I know that what that how that war really began and what the Political and historical reasons for the war. So, um, so I, I yeah, I, I incorporated some of the, the images, archival images, as well as some of the official sort of the military narratives, um, as well as uh, some of the propagandas um, uh, in the book. But to sort of um, not repeat those narratives, but to sort of expose.
0: Them for what they are. That is a question. I wonder about the, the the family materials, how that you know, how you kind of handle that incorporation in terms of the personal that takes you kind of um, beyond, not only into the counter narrative of the official um, story, but also that kind of the element of how that fits into your own family narrative. Um,
2: um, I think that was more came into it, it. Um, because I my father wrote me like 100 pages by hand of his the very first month of the Korean War what he did and what he was doing what he saw uh, and I kind of put it aside for about 10 years I, I didn't really do anything with it I just kind of came back to it read it several times and I uh, just forget about it and so it just kind of it took time Um, And also, um, it took also time for me to understand how war has shaped me, my own life, because all the wars that my father saw and documented that was part of his job as a a photographer and also a photojournalist, Um, but how wars really impact us on a very personal level. Um, so that's
0: what I was exploring through use of the
4: family um, uh, material, more personal material. Mm-hmm. And I really like I really like really that as, the, the, that aspect of your work. I mean, the um, especially the one poem where you where you where you, where you um, um, spoke in Korean and, and at the end you said, "I will not translate. Mm-hmm. I will not translate." I really mm-hmm. love that aspect, right? Because it's, it, it really it, for me it plays on this question that I often have, right? Of where do I draw the line? When do I drop in the Spanish? When do I drop in the English? And uh, and 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 how close can we get, right? Because in what what language then? Which language? In which which is a, which of our languages is the our language of secrets or our language of family, right? I don't want to go into the into the Richard Rodriguez public-private thing, right? With 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 Spanish, but I I think that there is something to be said about languages how we hold how we hold language dear to us, right? And so um, what can be translated? How can and how can how um, and how can we approach that sort of that absence and how can we say that that how can we speak to that gap? I think that was really, really fantastic. I think this Ms. may Choy- have to be our last. Yeah, Ms. Troy, uh, I, I want to
0: compliment
5: you. Uh, I want to use a baseball metaphor. I mean, it seems like you use the Korean War as a kind of you know relief pitch picture to come in and sets up in, in let's say the 7th or 8th ending, and then the Vietnam War as a clone. Uh, because you you talked about the Korean War as the, the non war, the almost war, the war that wasn't, but in fact it was very much a war. And you also show that suffering, and you also show that in fact napalm became the infamous thing that happened in Vietnam. So that's set up allowed you then to move on from the non-war, in quotes, with irony, to the real war in in Vietnam, and then we get the full impact of that. And in relationship to, you know, like President Johnson's picking the daisy, I thought that was a a, a very interesting insert and juxtaposed to that, so using it as a setup.
0: Thank you, everyone, for coming. Please um, feel free to uh, look at the books, and if you wish to buy, you can do that uh, right now. (laughs) Thank Thank you.